turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. If you've been uh, tuning into TV with our neighbors down there in Mexico, you may have uh, run across an ad that's been starting to be was released in 2013. And it's a, it's a commercial that depicts Mexico's long march out of poverty and oppression. And you got this massive boulder, and it's got all these chains coming from it. And attached to these chains are the people of Mexico of all different ages, young, old, in between. And they got this leather like belt thing that goes across their chest, and they got these chains. And they're literally trying to drag this massive boulder up the hill. And they make a little bit of progress, and then all of a sudden the boulder just comes coming down the hill again. And they all just fall down, and they get drugged down there. And it's like bad, and it's ominous, and there's a vulture flying around, and and then they get back up and they're starting to go in and all of a sudden the music gets rather triumphant sounding, you know, like something good's going to happen. And, and then this one guy, he, he gets up and he takes this leather strap off and he releases himself from these chains. And pretty soon everybody's doing it. And they got one scene where there's, they're helping an older person do it and they're, they're being released from these chains and they're starting to smile and the music is pounding and it is good and they're starting to march up that hill and there is nothing that hinders them. And you're like, man, What is the message? Who is this amazing savior for the people of Mexico? And then all of a sudden, you have uh, these words come up in Spanish. Keep walking Mexico. And then you have the logo for Johnny Walker, Scotch Whiskey. And that is the great redeemer for the people of Mexico. And just in case you're unfamiliar with it, uh, Johnny Walker, there it is. It's estimated that there's 120 million bottles of that sold annually, okay? That means that four bottles of that are going down every single second around the world. And you listen to that and you're like, man, come on, that's terrible. A TV commercial that is trading oppression for addiction. Do you really think that Johnny Walker is going to really emancipate the people from Mexico? I'll tell you, there are millions of people that think this is what I need. Alcohol will get me through, right? Or you pick your drug of choice or whatever addiction or whatever you're going to fill it in. You pick the idols of this world. And you're like going, you know that commercial? That would be maybe a great commercial to advertise the gospel and Christianity. I mean, think of it. You, uh, you believe in Jesus and you're released from the chains and you can walk freely. You'll never again struggle with temptation. In fact, you will laugh at it. There's no trial that could ever hurt you. You were, it's, it's life is bliss, right? That would be a great commercial for Christianity. Except for this one just heart-wrenching reality. It actually isn't our experience. I mean, we like to say... No problems. We sing the song, Victory in Jesus, right? Oh my God, right? We know the song. And we'd like to think that we would never, ever face temptation. Sin is never, ever an issue in our life. But the harsh reality is this, that it is. I mean, we still deal with anger, even as believers, right? Lust, jealousy, lying issues, pride, it still surfaces, and it, is, it paralyzes us. We feel dis- defeated on top of our discouragement. We're like, it throws us into theological chaos because it shouldn't be this way because we know Christ, and Christ is the victor, and why is it that I'm wallowing and facing these sin issues? Why do I keep biting into temptation? Friends, it will be utterly dismal until you truly understand and embrace the reality 
that is found in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 and following. This last half of the chapter, if you really want to win the war within, and that's where it's felt, right? It's not external so much as it's going on in here, right? You know what I'm talking about? If you want to win the war within, there's a couple things you need to understand. The first thing is, you've got to, have an, you've got to know the nature of the battle. You have to understand what it is really like. Now, I know, chances are, if you've placed your faith in Christ, and most of you that have come here, probably that's your reality, and your temper isn't flaring like it once did, or at least not as often, right? Your language and driving have improved, and we can notice this difference, right? There's been improvements there. Uh, For instance, lying is no longer trending in your life, and you stop stealing altogether, right? I mean, changes have started to come in your life. But you've probably realized that even though you have a new heart, you not only love Christ and you got a new orientation, in fact, His Spirit resides in you, but even though you got a new heart, you still have this old body. It's kind of like the author and poet Carl Sandburg. He said, quote, There is an eagle in me that wants to soar, and there is a hippopotamus in me that wants to wallow in the mud. And, and not only wallow in the mud, but swallow it, make you sick, Right? And that is the struggle that we face. Now, when you come to Romans 7, verses 14 and following, there's a lot of different views on this, okay? And this is a hotly debated uh, passage, like in seminaries and in different books. One interpretation says that, well, this is Paul's experience before he became a Christian. However, I think if you studied out and you look at the heart and the depth of the understanding and the yearning of his heart to truly want to walk with God and, and, the, and loves his word, I I really believe this is the reality for those who are in Christ, and specifically those who are maturing in their relationship with Jesus. If you got the idea that once you trust in Jesus, you will never, ever face a temptation that you can't just overcome like that, sin will never be, it'll be a non-existent issue, you're in for a very startling discovery, aren't you? And so look at what Paul says, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Paul says, like he said in verse 12, we know that the law is from God and it reveals the character of God. Verse 12, he says, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Verse 14, he says, it's spiritual. The law actually deals with internal spiritual matters. And when God gave the law, okay, through Moses, it certainly did dealt with external behavior, but it's, it was desire was to actually hit at an internal reality in your heart. It's exactly what Jesus drove home on the Sermon on the Mount. We've been talking about that. Even if you look at the book of Deuteronomy where God gives the second giving of the law. Remember Moses then reiterates it. I want you to notice how often he speaks of loving God, which has a reciprocal response that you actually love his word. You desire to do or respond to what he's asked. And so he says the law is spiritual. It's good. Hey, I just got one major problem. And that problem is what? I am of flesh. I'm sold into bondage to sin. I still, though I am a new creature in Christ, I still have this unredeemed humanness, this residual dwelling of sin within me, a propensity to do what is wrong. There is still within me a rebellion that does not want to be submitted to the lordship of Christ. And he says, I'm in bondage to sin. Verse 15, for he says, for, you know, what I am doing, I do not understand. 
for I'm not practicing what I'd like to do. I'd really like to be walking with God, following his word, never, ever sinning. But, this is the Apostle Paul writing, I am doing the very thing that I hate. No one, I don't care how much you've grown in Christ, 100% is loving God wholeheartedly, mind, body, soul, and spirit. We face choices and it is a daily struggle and a real reality. Let me give you some insights from the past. Some of you are familiar with the guy by the name of D.L. Moody. came to Christ as an adult, 19th century American evangelist and author. He wrote this of his experiences. When I was converted, I made this mistake. I thought the battle was already mine, the victory already won, the crown already in my grasp. I thought of the old things had passed away and that all things had become new. And my old corrupt nature, old life, that was all gone. But I found out, after serving Christ for a few months, that conversion was only like enlisting in the army, that there was a battle on hand. That's exactly what Paul is speaking about. Or C.S. Lewis, you're familiar with him, 20th century author, Christian apologist, Uh, Professor Oxford, in Mere Christianity, he writes this, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current, that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation now know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting it, not by giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. When you try to actually win the struggle of this war within that's when you find out just up what you're up against and what's in your flesh. And there's a big difference between struggling with sin and succumbing to it. Some people say, man, I'm just really struggling with sin. Really? Tell me what's going on. And then you listen to a couple of minutes, like they're not struggling with sin. They're just completely giving themselves over to it. They're succumbing to it. They're not struggling. They're not trying to fight. They're just putting themselves in the path of temptation. They're not trying to avoid it. They're just putting themselves in it and they give themselves over. No, there's a major difference between struggling with sin and succumbing to it. Why is sin so alluring to our flesh? Well, I I found this to be fascinating. Like just the subject of why people cheat, okay? Why, Why do people cheat like on exams and expense reports and taxes and other endeavors? There's been uh, four universities have been doing a rather extensive study. Results have been starting to publish in 2012. And what they have found is that cheating often provides psychological rewards. And it motivates people to act unethically. Ethically. In fact, they've actually given a label to this. They call it the cheater's high. So in one study, they had 205 participants where they had an opportunity to cheat. Many of them did. And they found that not only did they they actually feel better than those who didn't cheat when they compared them. But they also found this, that those who cheated rated themselves higher on how they felt that they were clever, capable, accomplished, satisfied, and superior. They not only felt good about cheating, you know what? They flat out felt smug about it. 
And Forbes magazine, when they were writing about these studies, said this, quote, We can add this study to the pantheon of research undermining the idea that humans are good at heart. And we wonder why Wall Street investment banks, stocked with the smartest minds from Ivy League schools, all plunged lemming-like off the same cliff in the credit crisis. You see, sin often entraps us and it becomes habitual because it feels good and your flesh says, this makes sense. I like to do what I want to do. I like to do even the, to violate what God says is right or what we should avoid because we do not like. There's something in our residual nature that does not, it rebels against God's authority in our life. And Paul is writing about these experiences. In fact, listen to him. Verse 16. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, guess what? I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. I I don't want to do it. I'm agreeing. But verse 17, look what he says. But so now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin dwells in me. Sin is kind of like a deposed monarch. And he's no longer in the throne of your life, but he's not dead. He's like living within you. He's no longer king because now you're under the kingship and authority of Christ. But he wants territory. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants to occupy anything he can. And Paul says, you know, he says, no longer, you see that in verse 17? No longer am I the one doing it, but sin dwells within me. He's not absolving himself from personal responsibility. Paul isn't some sort of spiritual schizophrenic, okay? That's not what Christians are. But let me tell you what he's saying here. When he says, it's no longer am I the one doing it. Your identity completely changes when you've been united with Christ. He now becomes your identity. His death to sin is your death. His life, his resurrection is your life. You have a new identity if you are truly a Christian. But when he says, but it's no longer I'm the one doing it, but it is sin that dwells in me. There is something in my unredeemed humanness that wants to rebel and to sin. In fact, he goes on to conclude in verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. And then listen how he qualifies that. So you see what he's saying. That is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me. Man, let me assure you, I really want to walk with God. I want victory every time over temptation. But the doing of the good is not. Now, this whole idea that, okay, well, okay, so it's the sin that's in your flesh. Well, Paul is, what he's doing is he's basically kind of uh, warring against a Greek dualism that basically said that your spirit is good, but the body is evil. And this, this led into a heresy in the early church called Gnosticism, okay? Where it's the idea, and this is what it was practiced, uh, hey, what? Well, you can do whatever you want with your body. Sin at will with Im- impunity. I mean, there's no, nothing's going to happen to you. Your spirit goes untainted because, after all, there's this great split. No, what Paul is doing, he's lying it out. There's something still within our residual flesh that rebels against God. And he says, nothing good dwells in me. He's still taking responsibility. In fact, if you think that once you become a Christian that you never sin, 
then you're in conflict with what is written in the New Testament. You want another passage? You could look this up. First John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. In verse 8, he says, guess what? If we say that we have no sin, and he's writing to believers, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We face a real war and a real struggle. And let's just, let's give you some real-life examples of how it happens in our lives. For instance, you can take a perfectly healthy relationship, okay? Could be at work, uh, maybe neighbor, folks you meet at the gym, whatever. And all of a sudden, I mean, things like jealousy can creep in, conflict can emerge, split unity. I mean, you got relationships that once were just really healthy and all of a sudden they, they turn into immorality. What? Where did that come from? Or like, how about this one? Your feelings get hurt. And then what do you do? Well, you take that little molehill, you blow it up into a mountain, right? Ever happened to you? Oh, yeah, okay. Now, I'm not the only one, right? What happens? Sin just kicks in. And you're like, how did that take place? Or you've ever been in like a really good conversation. It's edifying. It's encouraging. Man, it's been great. Maybe even encouraged each other spiritually. But then what happened? Then next thing you know, you're running over someone's character. And you're like, really? Where did that come from? Or... Isn't it amazing that all like out of nowhere, out of the blue, like some, just some of the foulest thoughts or words just like hit your head. I'm like, you're kidding me. I mean, I was just walking with God or I was mowing my yard. I, I, I just got done praying. What, where did that come from? That's what Paul is talking about. Now, this whole struggle with this whole the sin within, okay, like Paul is referencing here. Let me assure you, that Christians have been aggressively trying to deal with this for many years. So for instance, um, there was actually pretty early in Christianity, there was the idea that you isolate yourself completely from society, and they were called hermits, okay? We still refer to hermits, and it's the idea that you lived in isolation, and they did. They'd try to go live up in the mountains, you know, if they ran into each other, they'd fight each other, but then they, they wanted to live in isolation. Did it work? No. As far as they tried to run, they still found that they, they still sinned. And they said all these evil thoughts. So they thought, well, maybe what we need is accountability. Maybe what we need to do is to live in groups. And so they started monasteries. Because if we're in this together, and we'll go live out in the middle of nowhere where no one will bother us, and we will live completely separated, and we'll have each other. Did that address the sin struggles that they had? No. And I'm sorry to report that a lot of times monastic life was far worse than life in the world. They'd have been better back in the city. Or let me give you a a trend that started to take place in the 20th century. We still have its effects even today. And that is the idea, yeah, that's right. You're struggling with sin, and I got the answer for you. You know what you need? You need the second blessing. You need the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you will, you will have a victory over sin, and you will never... Again, face temptation. You will always overcome. You will be far more than conquerors. And let me assure you, this, is, this was a strong message and it attracted many people and still does today. And within charismatic circles, this is the message. And it actually creates a dichotomy. You got, you got people that are really first-class Christians that are, quote-unquote, filled with the Spirit by their definition, maybe even speaking in tongues, And then you got the rest of them, the struggling folks that just won't get it and will not adopt our methods. But did it work? Well, why don't you go ask folks like Jerry Falwell or Bob Tilton or Jim Baker? 
It was a false message, and it had crushing results. Paul is wrestling with these same issues. And look at him, verse 19. For the good that I want, I do not do. I want it. I don't do it. But I practice, he says, the very evil that I do not want. And he says, but if I am the one that is doing it, doing the, if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin dwells in me. We are chronically addicted to sin. Verse 21, I find the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Verse 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Okay, time out. Does the non-believer joyfully concur with the law of God really want to do it? That was not my experience. And I'm going to guess it wasn't your experience either. No, the non-believer is not, I joyfully want to do the law of God. No, 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 no. But the believer does. And he says, verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man who I really am, who I really am in Christ. But the problem is this, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Or that law could be translated principle. I find this spiritual principle. I, the very one who wants to do good, I find that I can't. Now, I can tell you, that if Paul, when Paul passes away, despite his struggles, he is immediately and always ready to be in the presence of the king. The sin issue in terms of penalty of sin has been dealt with. He's been united with Christ, but he is completely justified before God, but he faces a pretty serious struggle, and so do we. You ever uh, seen the partial finished sculpture? It's called the Captives. Michelangelo actually created it uh, it was supposed to be for Pope Julius II's, uh, um, to be on his, for his funeral and for his uh, grave. And uh, he never actually got around to finish it. And that, Pope Julius II, he dies in 1513. And Michelangelo, here's a picture of it, part of it anyway, he never actually finished it. And so within this marble, you see these torsos, a hand and a head. And they're like literally trying to like emerge from this prison of marble. And if you look at it, it, it just like begs for these people to be released. Author Theodore Rodor, when he was studying this, he wrote this of his experience of just looking at the captives. He wrote, when I looked at to those partial figures, they stirred up in me a deep longing to be completed, an ache to be set free from that which distorts and disguises, imprisoned and inhibits my humanness and my wholeness. But as with those statues, I cannot liberate myself. For that, I need the hand of another." The reality is, we can't do it. We're unable. That looks a lot like our lives. We see partial aspects of who we are in Christ being demonstrated in some pretty significant ways, and yet, there's other aspects of our being so stuck. And who in the world could help us? Is there any hope? If you want to see the depth of the struggle, look at the power of these words, verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Do you see the passion just literally pouring out of his pen? Wretched, who who would free me? Who will set me free? And that that phrase, set me free, that was used um, 
of a soldier that would rescue a wounded comrade off the battlefield and take him into safety. It literally could be translated, who will rescue me from danger? Who will do it? He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Now, do you guys know where Paul came from? Paul from Tarsus. Now, we don't know for certain if this is what he's referencing, but there was an ancient tribe that actually inhabited the area of Tarsus, and they had an extremely brutal and gruesome way to execute murderers. And what they would do is they would take a murderer, and whoever they killed, they would take that corpse, and they would strap it to the body of the murderer, and, and he would literally carry that around, and he would die within a couple of days as infection spread, and it was a vile painful, gruesome death. And when Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? The mature Christian, they hate sin within. They don't want to live like this. They want to live in the goodness and the holiness of God. They do not want to be a part of this struggle. And so he says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And you will find the more you grow to understand God's holiness and to love his word, the more you're going to see just where sin seems to pop up everywhere. Is there any hope? Let me introduce you to one of the most powerful verses of the Bible. Verse 25. If you want to win the war within, you've got to be focusing on the triumph of the Savior. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Literally, rejoicing, thankfulness. Can't you just see this exclamation of discovery? There is hope. There is victory. We can win this war within when we focus on who? On Jesus Christ our Lord. God hasn't given you the power to live the Christian life because you can't do it. You know what he's done? He has given you Christ and Christ is the Christian life. God isn't like saying like, well, you just need to live the Christian life and follow these things. God has literally united you with Christ and it literally is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We trust him and we live differently. And that is why he says, focus in on him. The beauty of Christianity is this. When you and I realize our sinfulness, turn from our sin and trust in Christ, we literally are united with him. And that God actually places his Holy Spirit in our lives, something we're going to see in great detail in Romans chapter 8. We literally are new creatures. We have the ability to live differently. And who do you focus on? If you really want to win the war within, you focus on Jesus Christ, our Lord. When you say Jesus, it speaks of his humanness. God, the eternal son, entered into humanity. And he lived a perfect life. And we can always turn to him. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, talk about that we have this great high priest, speaking of Christ. And it says in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, yet without sin. And then he says in verse 16, he says, Therefore, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you need help? Do you really want to overcome this struggle wherever it comes, wherever it hits? You focus in on Jesus. And sometimes, friends, I find just literally saying the name Jesus to be so very utterly helpful to put my focus back on him. And notice it is Jesus Christ could be translated Messiah. God promised one who would deliver us from our sins, one who would be our propitiation. 
and he has delivered in Christ. And what happened is God took our sins and put it on the body of Christ. Like it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You think about Jesus. You sin, I sin. What do you do? Ignore it, rationalize it, hope no one noticed. No, 1 John 1, 9, if we do this, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God always wants us to be living in the joy and the peace of Christ. And notice what else he says. It is Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does that mean? It means that he's the absolute ruler of the universe, and he is literally reigning in the hearts of those who believe. And so when you say, Christ is my Lord, you literally are yielding your life and saying, not my will, but yours be done. And so whatever you need, do you need forgiveness? Do you need to be able to forgive another? Do you need to forgive yourself? And there's some of you, you cannot seem to forgive yourself for some of the things that you've done. Let me tell you where the hope is. It's found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He will give us what we need, whether we need direction, courage, encouragement, hope, fresh start. What you do, the mature Christian regularly is thinking about the death, the resurrection, the life, the words, and the miracles of Jesus. You develop patterns of thinking of him. And you focus your heart. And God gives us means of grace, prayer, the word, worship, solitude. He gives us friends that can encourage us, gives us opportunities to gather together to worship. What we do, it's the ongoing orientation of focusing on him. And triumph with the war within is found only by staying focused on him. Whatever you need, you're going to find it in Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember Jesus? You know, Jesus faced temptation. Matthew 4, Luke 4. How did he overcome it? How did he do it? What can we learn? Well, I'll tell you how he did it. He did it on dependence in prayer. Remember when Satan tempted him after the 40 days in the desert? Dependence in prayer and finding direction through scripture. Did you notice that every temptation that he was given, he actually came back with scripture? God's word. And I've told you this, and you see it right there in the text. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. It's kind of like a guy who's like really thirsty. He's like, oh, it's so hot here in central Texas. It's 110 degrees in the shade. Now I'm so very thirsty. And you're like, man, I can help you out. So you go and get this guy this really nice ice-cold glass of orange juice. And there you go. And he's like, oh, thank you. This looks like something I need. And he looks at it, and you're like, you ought to drink that. And and maybe even takes a sip. Oh, man, that's so good. But let me tell you how dehydrated I am. I'm like, wait, what's wrong with you? Just, Just drink that up. That is going to help you. That will be so refreshing to you. And then, but he's holding it but he actually never gets to it. That is kind of like a lot of Christians. What you and I need is right there in verse 25. And we know it, and we have him, but we will not turn to him. It's like, well, everybody else is trying to find 
their sense of replenishment and, and better circumstances or a better job or a better spouse or whatever. And they're trying to find life and refreshment and renewal in the idols of this world and they always disappoint. You have to. There's only one hope, one message, and one gospel. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we always turn to him. And this is what it looks like, friends. You and I go in, in this world our life quickly becomes out of tune. Have you ever been in the orchestra or played in band? Have you ever noticed like your instrument gets out of tune like all the time? That's why they're always tuning it up, at least a decent musician. And you train kids very early, you gotta keep tuning, you gotta stay in tune. When your life starts producing disharmony, disunity, you don't have a sense of peace, you're causing havoc all around, you're just kind of like a cloud of despair and destruction, you know what you need? You need to tune your life to Christ. You focus on him in the word, prayer, call out to him, be quiet, worship, find friends that will encourage you. But it's like we need to keep coming to the tuning fork that of, of our transformation, and that is Jesus Christ. You see, God is a refuge and strength. He's a very present help in time of need. But you and I need to learn how to focus on Christ. Otherwise, this is going to be a rather miserable struggle. In his book, Obedience Option, David Hegg illustrates what he calls overwhelming faith. He was having this discussion with this young man who, this particular young man just said he just couldn't stop sleeping with these different girls, okay? And so he said, you know, God just created me with very strong sexual lust, and it's these strong desires and urges, and I cannot help myself, okay? Maybe you've heard rhetoric like that. So Hegg finally uh, interrupted the young man as he's going on to his great excuses as to why his behavior is of such. And he said this, you know, what if um, I were to walk in and catch you right when you were just getting started with the inevitable, right? But you could never stop, right? And I, I, I laid before you $1,000. And I said, hey, listen, I'll give that for you free if you just stop right now. Would you take it? And the guy said, well, yeah, man, I'd do that. 1000 bucks, Sure. And then it kind of hit, hit him. You see, one passion may seem irresistible until a greater passion comes along. And friends, that's how it is with sin. Is it alluring? Does it appeal to your flesh? It is the currency of your fallen humanity. But when we have a greater passion for Christ, who he is, his gospel, for obedience to God, uh, to treasure and value Christ more than our sin. We live differently. We live completely differently. And we simply have to come to a place where we want Christ over the counterfeit idols of this world. And that means that we're willing to stay away from the things that are tempting to us. Don't put yourself in situations where you know you're going to be compromised. Just to tell you, this war within, it's a conflict that is inevitable. Okay? Let's be realistic. We're in it. It is a struggle that is winnable as you and I learn how to focus in Christ. You don't have to be sinning all the time. There truly is victory in Christ, but you have to learn to go to him. And you might want to surround yourself with a few folks that are doing the exact same thing. Very helpful. And finally, I want, I want to give you one other word of hope. It is a condition that is temporal. You see, one day, we're going to be emancipated from this body, whether through the rapture, what's spoken of like in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, where Christ comes and he takes his own, or death, when we are separated and emancipated from this body. But I'll tell you this, in this life, you're going to find it's rather difficult to walk in a straight line. 
In fact, this is something that's actually even been proven. There was a guy by the name, a scientist, Jan Soman. He did this massive study where he blindfolded all these different people to see if they could walk in a straight line for an hour. And he even tried it with swimming, uh, which I can't imagine what that would be like. But he, and do you know what the success rate? How many people could actually walk a straight line while blindfolded for one hour? Zero percent. It's impossible. Can't be done. In fact, they have these patterns, even though they think they're walking a straight line, like little squiggly things, you know? It can't be done. The only way you can walk in a straight line, it has been scientifically determined, is if you actually fix, your point, fix yourself to a point. You set your eyes on a point that is ahead of you, whether it's a mountain or a building or whatever. That's true of walking physically, but it is especially true in our spiritual walk. You and I, you want to win this war within? We have to learn to fix our eyes upon Jesus. Triumph in the war within is only found as we're staying focused on him. And when we do, we have the sweetness of overcoming. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of scripture. You lay it out so clearly. It's fascinating how the Spirit of God wrote out even our experiences in such great detail. And so, Father, God, give us a heart to not only understand the nature of the battle, but to focus on Christ, our victor. And for those who have come here today who have never trusted in Christ, would they just simply pray with me now that you have their attention? God, I turn from myself and my sin, and I trust in Jesus. God, help me and save me. And fill me with your life. And Lord, I give you everything I am. Would you accomplish your glory in my days? And we ask this as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.